Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you, people, we have an we have an awesome guest today. You know, he has he has a new album coming out November 10th, and he has this single that came out, and the video has a QR code which can make you enter a contest, which is amazing. And you know him from the band Jackal, but he's he's an entrepreneur with with his spirits, with a new project called Mixer, with his TV work. And my guest is Jesse James Dupree. How you doing, Jesse? Good to talk to you, man. You, you just made me tired mentioning all that. That's, that sounds like a lot of work. Yes, you must work your ass off, dude. I'm going to tell you, you know, everyone has an idea of what a rock star's life is like, but they don't see what goes behind the scenes, and you take it the umpteenth. I mean, it's really amazing. How do you get the energy? Well, yeah, I surround myself with a good team, and they, they, they surgically had it, can't be done, take it out of their vocabulary, and it doesn't matter what gets in front, put in front of them. They figure out a way to go and make things happen. Uh, they um, they just they seriously will not accept a no, and if they hear a no, they turn it into a yes, and uh, that's the that's the successful way to to get out there, surround yourself with great people, and, and try to deliver a great product, whether whether it's a bottle of whiskey or whether it's a song or you know whatever the case may be. And uh, you know the full throttle sign up in Sturgis, South Dakota. You know we have people come up there and have the time of their life. And, uh, you know, they'll travel 1,700 miles from anywhere to get there. And they stay with us at the Full Throttle Saloon in the Pappy Hoyle Campground, P-A-P-P-Y-H-O-E-L campground.com if you want to go check it out. It's 600 acres of off the hook. We have 1,000 RV hookups, 300 cabins, tent camping for days. Harley-Davidson put a big building out there. They do a lot of really cool experiential stuff on the property. We have an all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet, a dinner buffet. We have a convenience store. We have three racetracks, a firing range. You can shoot 50 caliber guns and using machine guns. And we bring in cars and vans for you to blow up. There's a runway that'll take people up skydiving. And on top of all of that, you got the full throttle saloon that sits right there on 50 of the 600 acres with 300 voluptuous go-go dancing bartenders, badass motorcycles, cold belly washers, which happens to be the Jesse James Bourbon in the largest stage of all South Dakota sitting there with, you know, national acts coming through to play every single night. And it's just, uh, you know, just uh, it, seriously, it's the last fantasy island for adults left in in America. Dude, you said about, I, I, I'm tired just hearing you <laughs> spiel that off. That was good, man. You had that shit down. You just, you rapid fired that. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's just the way, it's just a reality. That's what's out there. And, and, and you're right nestled in the middle of the Black Hills of South Dakota, which is, should be a mandatory trip that all those goobers in Washington, D.C. should have to be made. Matter of fact, everybody in New York and L.A. should have to be made to go see it because it'll really center you really, really quick. I mean, you're right there in the middle of Mount Rushmore, Crazy Horse, Deadwood, Devil's Tower, the Badlands, Needles Highway, Spearfish Canyon. I mean, it's just some of the, you know, the, and the Full Throttle Saloon, of course, one of the seventh wonders of the world. And it's just, I'm just telling you, it's um, it's a, an amazing place. I, we look forward to getting out there every year for the rally and, and uh, just some really cool stuff going on. Now, let's talk about, well, the single, Never Gets Old, you co-wrote with Brian Johnson. That's on the new album coming out, uh, which comes out November 10th, uh, Breathing Fire. How did how did you get? Well, um, I met Brian back in the late 90s. Um, his wife, had been, she was doing a big benefit for a, an old Ringling Brothers Barman Bailey Circus uh, muse, uh, uh, theater. There's a big theater. Ringling Brothers used to be based in Sarasota, Florida. And they had all the buildings and stuff down there that, that were just amazing buildings. And they, one of them was a theater, and she was trying to, to and, and, and actually was successful in restoring that old theater. And so she put a fundraiser together, and, and Brian Johnson from ACDC was there, her husband, and, and Tina Turner's band leader and some of the bandmates, and Cliff Williams from, you know, from ACDC was there, and 
and Duck, D Donald Duck Dunn from Booker T and the MGs and the Blues Brothers movies, you know, the legendary Duck Dunn that played with Otis Redding. And there, I mean, he was there. I mean, just all these legends that were hanging out. Jim Brewer, from the comedian from Saturday Night Live, he hosted the night. And uh, just just a lot of no good that we just had a blast. And, and I met him that way. And, and we just maintained a relationship over the years. We had gotten together sometime after that. We wrote a song called Locked and Loaded that uh, he actually sang with me on. And uh, just a, just a, a great a great uh, a comparison of how different we sound. I mean, a lot of people compare us, but I mean, you know, everybody knows there's only one Brian Johnson, and you know, I'd, I'd sing a minute, and he'd show me how it's done, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just great. But uh, we do that, and then uh, of course, uh, a song called "Kill the Sunshine" we wrote together, and then uh, this song, uh, the, the new song, "Never Gets Old." Uh, this album wasn't planned. It's a solo album I'm doing under my name, but. Make no mistake, I mean, it's my son, Nigel T. Dupree, on the drums, Roman Glick on the bass guitar. You know, I'm playing guitar and singing, and, and we just had a blast. Uh, it was not planned. It just happened. And uh, that's the best kind of music to go down is when something just happens. And um, and then I, we had recorded it. And, again, I had not spoken to Brian in about six months. And and just coincidentally, a couple of days after we laid the song down, he hey, Jesse, how you doing? You know, he calls and and I just couldn't believe that uh, his timing. But I said, you know, I wasn't going to call you, but since you called me, we got to write some songs together. And I sent him the music. And next thing you know, we uh, ended up with, you know, a bunch of stuff on this album that, that's, that I'm really proud of. Now, your son plays drums on it. Now, how did, did you encourage your son to get into the music business? Because it's funny, a lot of times people, I know a lot of actors, and, and they, don't, they say we don't encourage your sons. But a lot of family, music is your family business besides your business ventures. That's what you started out with. Did you and people always follow their father's footsteps in business and stuff like that? But did you encourage him to get into the music business? I didn't. Uh, he it just. I mean, he was. That's all he. It's all he knew. I mean, he just grew up around it. And I, I, I went through a divorce when he was six years old. I got custody of him, and um, and so he toured with me, and he was raised by the band on the bus. You know, for the most part, when he was really young, so. He, he does, doesn't just know music. He knows the, all the ins and outs. We would get through playing, and while we were on stage playing, the bus driver who was really close to us, he became a family member. His name was Clay McGinnis, and Clay would, would sit on the bus, and Nigel would have to go to bed if it was a late show. And so Nigel would crash out in the bunk right above mine. And so we'd get through playing, and we'd come in, and you know, obviously he's up there sleeping, and... and uh, he would get up early in the morning and go up front and the driver would stop by and get him a, a, a McDonald's egg, egg McMuffin or something. And, and, uh, but they, we'd get to the, the, the show, the next show and Nigel would walk inside with the, with the, uh, the, um, bus driver, just looking at the venue. And if the local crew was in there getting ready for us to load in Nigel at, at seven, eight years old, he'd walk in and say, you guys have got to move this over here. Those lights have got to be aimed over here. And the PA has got to be, you know, set this way. And, I mean, he just knew all of that stuff because he was around it. But but we, I, I cannot tell you how many times that we would go into a venue and the the local crew would just be laughing their ass off and tell me the story <laughs> about how he came in and started directing the show, and uh, you know, like making them clear the stage or pull the drum riser out to where it's got to go or move the lights so the PA's too far out in front of the stage. Or I mean, he just knew that stuff because he'd been around it. And as far as playing, it was the same way. He just he picked, he played guitar, he could sing, he plays drums. He, he, he's very versed. 
How does it make you feel when your son's on the album? Let's make you very proud as a father. It's a, it's a feeling a lot of people don't get to feel, but does it sit there? It must make you proud, but also, are you, if he misses a beat, are you going to be hard on him because he's your son, or are you gonna, or you're not be hard on him like you would be someone else? You know, you know, I've played with him, and you know, he's went out and played with me before in some of my earlier solo stuff. I did a country album that he played some drums on and went out and toured with me, and um, he's turned into such a monster now. But I mean, there was a time when he was, you know, really making the commitment to get behind the drums to do stuff, and and I would, you know, be trying to challenge him to do a different kind of a part or to work the hi hat differently or whatever. And you know, you go through those through those discussions with other bandmates if you're if you're just in a regular band, you know, and you can you can get sideways with each other and cuss each other and and uh, you know and and then find the middle ground or whatever. You know, when it's your son, you know, I can't tell you it's a whole different it's a whole different animal. Whenever you get into it, and he throws his sticks down. He goes, Dad. <laughs> when, when you hear dad you know it changes everything because it's, it's not a normal argument but uh but over the years um he is you know he's gotten to where he shows me because he's a badass now i want to talk about the video now whose idea was it to put the qr code in it and all the fonts and stuff like that because i was scooping through it i did see the acdc uh canon i may be right on that i'm pretty sure and i saw some iron maiden uh i, I i'm sitting there and i'm i'm trying you know it's so funny as I get older, I, I get attention disorder. I, you know, I usually I could focus on a video. Yeah. But who's, yeah. whose idea was it for the contest? And tell me about the contest. Because did, you can win a trip to Florida, and if they get all the songs right, they can win like $1,000 or $2,000 extra in the cash? Yeah. Um, so um, uh, it kind of came one thing after another. There was a radio station person, uh, a guy named Randy Hawk, that um, the, uh, he actually got credit on the album as the executive mix producer. Because while the album was being mixed, he sat there and drank and gave his comments on how the guitars needed to come up or down or that kind of thing. So we had a lot of fun. But he was the one that said, you know, you should do the lyric video with all the different fonts from the different bands. And I thought, okay, that's a great idea. And then it turned into, well, that could be a contest to see who could name them all. And then that turned into, let's put a QR code on there and let people get the QR code to win a chance to win something, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it just snowballed. And the response for the video has been great. Been a lot of people trying to name all 35 bands. Whether you name the 35 bands correctly or whether you name them at all, it doesn't matter. You can hit the QR code and still be registered to win a trip to Florida right after the first of the year. And uh, so, you know, go, go on YouTube, Jesse James Dupree on YouTube and look up the song Never Gets Old. And you can hit the QR code, register for the trip to Florida. And if you want to try to win an extra bonus $1,000, you can uh, try to name all the bands correctly that's listed in the video represented in the video now you've had a long career in music what got you into music well, you're you're i think you're a year older than me and you know i've heard your, your music made described as southern rock it's metal we grew up you know we grew up at a time where southern rock was king you know and molly hatchet uh leonard all those great bands what got you into music when did you first pick up the guitar i mean when did you get interested in playing music and who was your influences my, my first influence was whenever my, you know, my parents, my dad lost his job back in the early seventies and he sold everything we had, including my bicycle. And we moved to Gadsden, Alabama and he bought a little cafe and uh, we lived in a, a mobile home trailer in the back parking lot of that, that cafe. And, and there was a jukebox in there and the guy would come and change the records out. And there were all these cool old 45s. So in, in that, at that time at a young age, just turning to be a teenager, I was getting exposed to everything from, Deep Purple and Grand Funk to James Brown and, and, and Wilson Pickett and 
And uh, there was my favorite was a guy named Joe Tex. And Joe Tex to this day still never has, he has the best raspy voice of anybody. And I mean, he's like, he to me is the king. You know, I got you. Uh-huh. Huh? Thought you got away and now I didn't. You know, you know just, he's got like, just that great voice. And I used to mimic him, but I didn't ever think that I'd be singing in a, in a rock. I just wasn't thinking about it. Anyway, then through the years, I was playing football through all the weight divisions, through the peewee leagues and stuff. But as we got into high school, I just, I weighed 150 pounds and, and there wasn't a weight limit. And, you know, those, those guys that were 250 were, you know, cleaning my damn plow. The only way I could compete was to play dirty. So I ended up fighting more than playing football. And I ended up getting kicked out of games for fighting because I'm only going to let somebody, no matter how big they are, hit me one too many times and I'm just going to bust them in the mouth. And, you know, so I got, you know, got, got too much of that going on. It's a wonder I didn't get killed because, like I said, I was not – I had a six-foot, four, 280-pound attitude and a 150-pound frame. Uh, but um, but anyway, uh, I started getting into uh, uh, music, going and seeing these bands and these honky-tonks in the, uh, in the legendary Highway 41 that the Allman Brothers – sang about rolling down Highway 41. I, I live on Highway 41 that the Allman Brothers sang about. And, uh, you know, the, the, the road that the Midnight Rider, you know, truck that they had, they wrote the song about, used to go up and down 41. And and uh, we used to go to these honky-tonks and uh, these beer joints, smoke houses, we used to call them. And we'd sneak in. The drinking age was 18, and we, we were 14, 15 years old, going in there watching these bands play. And, and uh I mean, just, and that was the greatest guitar lessons ever. And, and just, just watching that, that, that level of just commitment, just to be up there playing in that damn cinder block building. And, and it didn't take long to get the bug. There was a Vietnam veteran named David Blunchett and uh, he played in one of those bands and, uh, and he would, we'd see him walking up highway 41 with his Stratocaster strapped across his back, with not even a case. And he was wearing his, his Vietnam jacket you know the, the army jacket they had worn in vietnam and he was a very recluse guy and, but he played with he played in a band with my best friend's brother and we would stop and pick him up and give him a ride up to that beer joint and then we'd go in there and watch him set up and watch him play and it got to where we eventually got close enough to it because he was a very quiet guy obviously seemed like he was dealing with some internal matters from vietnam even to be honest with you looking back on it now especially but we used to go over to pick him up and while he was getting ready you know he lived in this one little rental room off the, the square in marietta this old house that he was renting a room from this people and and we'd sit in there and he'd sit on the bed and he would show us how to play. we'd ask him how to play stuff and he'd show us how to play it and, and uh and that was my guitar lessons and uh and and just and what a interesting fella i think about him all the time because there's certain ways that I make a chord or there's certain ways I play things that I never would have done and played or embraced had he not shown me how he did it. Now, when did you get into songwriting? Because, you know, for Jackal, you were the main songwriter. Was that something that once you started to learn to play the chord and play the, the you know, the chords and you're getting good, you say, okay, we, we can make music? Or is it something that there were songs always in your head at a younger age? Because sometimes... You know, if someone who's creative, the stuff will be stored in your head and it doesn't, and then like a few years later, all the shit just comes out. I mean, when did you start deciding to write songs? Well, I always wanted to write songs and, and uh, you know, always wrote songs. You just, when you were doing cover 
songs, playing other people's hits in the bars, we would slide the original song in. But you didn't tell everybody it was an original song because they'd get up and go to the bathroom. So, uh, so we, you know, we would just slide the songs in, and over time they became popular songs in those venues. Uh, I didn't realize that until I came off the road because my son was going to be born, and I thought I needed to get a real job. And so the guys in Jackal, I had known they were out playing around and they were a little bit younger than I was. And they, they asked me if they could play those songs. So I gave them a tape of the songs and people were calling me from around the Southeast going, Hey, there's a band playing your songs, which I thought, wow, I never announced that they were my songs. That's pretty cool that you know that. And uh, one thing led another and, uh, and the bar, and they, I was booking them in there to play and I would get up and, and sing the songs with them and the place would just pack out. So we knew we had something together and uh, it was special. And, uh, and so we took it on the road and I had made a commitment to my father because he was having to let my wife and newborn son live in his house. And uh, while I did it, but I made a commitment to him that, um, that I was going to uh, have a record deal within one year. And we had a record deal within one year. How hard was it if you get a deal? Because, you know, the record company's changed a lot now, and you're, uh, you know that. And back then, you know, you'd have to. Some people would bust their ass and never get a deal. Some people would get a deal all the, you know, quickly. Was how hard was it for you to get the deal? And was it a good deal? Because you know you're you're a businessman. So did you know what to look for the ins and outs, or did the business savvy come later? The business savvy came later. I mean, I, I was relying on common sense. So there were certain people that were offering me deals and, and, and putting stuff in front of us that just didn't feel right. You know, they just, uh, it did, they felt like they were sleazy or, you know, and, and history has shown that we weren't wrong. Some of the guys that are still around now but have had lawsuits from other bands that they got into deals that just were not good deals. So I was really lucky to have used common sense to stay away from some of those guys. We actually did it. Uh, we actually were successful because we made a commitment that we wanted to be signed by John David Kladner, who had signed bands that we grew up loving. So Foreigner and Aerosmith and Sammy Hagar and, uh, you know, just uh, White Snake and uh, uh, just uh, all of Cher's post-Sonny uh, Bono albums. And I was, he just a legendary guy. He was working with John Lennon the night he got shot. He was the A&R guy there. And so um, we knew we wanted to be signed by him. So we had every major label calling us want to sign us. And I would tell him, hey, if John Kalander doesn't sign us, I'll call you back. I mean, so it was it wasn't a matter if we were gonna get signed, it's by God who was gonna, you know, we wanted to know who we were gonna sign us. And when you're packing pay places out and you can't keep t-shirts in stock, it takes a you know, you'd have to be a damn idiot at a record company to not realize that the band was doing something. And that's not just us. I mean, that's any, you know, uh, you know, I was uh, lucky enough to work with the guys in Blackberry Smoke, you know, before anybody had really had a chance to see what they were about. And, you know, I carried them in, recorded and produced their first album and carried them out on the road with Jackal and, and, uh, and nurtured their relationships. And I'm so proud of what they've been able to go and do. But, and, you know, but I mean, you don't have to be a record, you know, you have to be a genius to realize these guys are packing out houses and they're selling a ton of t-shirts and, you know, it, it's uh, there, you know, so, for us, that was what we had. Of course, there's there's a lot of people that get signed based on talent and integrity. Um, I've never let that get in my way, the lack or the lack of having it. I just <laughs> I, I'll leave it to Bono or Springsteen to have the integrity and 
write a song that can cure cancer. I just want to stimulate your glands and get you so worked up you can't stand it till you jump in the back seat and knock out the old dirty, dirty. <laughs> so the first album does well. What is that like? What is that feeling when you sit there and your album is selling and you actually see a physical album? Because once again, we come to the generation where albums, I mean, I remember riding my bike to get albums and you pick it up and you look at it and you, you go, oh my God, the lyrics are inside. But as an artist, what is that like when you see that actual album? Um, you know, it, it was obviously a very romantic uh, period that, that you, you're speaking of when, you know, when the record companies used to control the monopoly on, you know, delivering a quality product to the consumer. In other words, it took the record company to put up, you know, half a million dollars for you to have a producer in a recording studio at a thousand dollars a day to record because you couldn't do it at home. And then they had to manufacture you know, at least 30,000 records to put it out across the country to get you started. And then they had to have a promotion team and a tour support and the video, or even before videos, just a radio promotion, whatever. And, you know, you had to have the cocaine that you traded, you know, the, the program director at the radio station, give him the cocaine so he would play your song. And, and that's probably the only thing in the music business that hadn't changed. But, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, that was a romantic uh, period of the music business. And, uh, um, you know, and that's when rock stars were rock stars. But, you know, the Internet changed it all. And now record companies don't exist anymore. There, there's entertainment companies that, that can wrap around a bigger beast and, and try to corner as much as they can. But that, that model that you're referring to. But it, as far as how was it, it was, I mean, it was a great time. I mean, you know, to, to get your first album, whether it was a vinyl record and, and CDs and, you know, and all that stuff. Um, it was great. You know, it just, I mean, I never, I don't. I, I still get excited when I see a new T-shirt we have coming out. You know, I mean, I just, I just posted a, you know, a, a bundle, a, a, a exclusive limited vinyl bundle uh, on the JesseJamesDupree.com for the vinyl record and CD and and uh, and uh, you know different bundles you can get with a limited vinyl for the new solo album that's coming out in November. And uh, and the response has just been incredible. So it's great to see people wanting that physical delivery you know and, and vinyls have made such a great comeback just for all the right reasons so it's really nice to think that somebody would put the needle on and listen to the full album front to back now how did the chainsaw come involved in your act because everyone knows the chainsaw when you mentioned jackal they know the chainsaw how did that come about i know you've probably been asked this question a thousand times but how did the chainsaw come into your act um well the chainsaw was um was something i, I, I there was a bar in Atlanta that we held the sales and attendance record on. And, and I knew we were going to pack the place out one night. And I'd been threatening the club owner, uh, his name was Butch. And I'd been threatening that I was going to bring a chainsaw in and cut the place up because it was a wooden kind of an Irish bar looking far the way the bar stuff was set up. Yeah, an Irish pub type of a bar. But I went in that night and I pulled the chainsaw out. I cut a bunch of stuff up and he lost his mind and he fined us a couple hundred bucks. He didn't fire us because he was making too much money, but, uh, and I carved the name of the band in the ceiling and um, and forgot about it. I went back home the next day and just went there. But my dad happened to be in the audience that night. And my dad told me the next day, he said, you need to keep doing that chainsaw thing. Because at the end of the night, all the guitar players were taking a lead break on an old blues jam. And I played the lead break on that and, and didn't think anything about it. And that's when my, my dad said, you need to keep doing that because it sounded good. And he, and about a week or two later, he shows up in South Carolina driving a car. 
And uh, I'm like, why is he in a car? Because he always rode his Harley chainsaw. So, and it just kind of kept working. If there's going to be a chainsaw laying around, you know you're going to play with it. So, I got to ask you, you have a lot of business ventures. Do you think your entrepreneurial spirit came up? He opened up a cafe and that's something that he changed. you think that's where you got your business savvy from? Or where did you get the business savvy? Because you have a lot of different, you've done a lot of different projects in, in your past. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest, the biggest uh, driver has been the fact that uh, I just get away with, I can't believe I get away with so much of what I'm doing. And, and, and I just, got, I just, I'm curious to see where it ends up at because, you know, um, and I didn't ever want to go back to pouring concrete. You know, I mean, I, 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 that's what I'd done, driving nails at construction sites. So I really immersed myself in, in and let's face it, I mean, you know, uh, whether you're selling an album or a widget, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, you, it's all based on the value of relationships and making sure you got a damn good widget. And uh, I found myself in a situation where I had a knack for marketing and branding. I, I, I started consulting a, Zippo lighters, and I did that for five years, and, and I couldn't believe that I was getting away with doing everything because it's so much fun. But I was selling a lot of Zippo lighters for them, and the ideas and the introductions. I was I introduced Zippo to all these radio stations that they're still in bed with now. But you know the, the lighters at the concerts. I just thought it was a perfect match. How, how did you get and, that job? How, how did that come about? Well, I put up. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do to practice this word branding. And we made a $40,000 investment and we put ISDN lines on the property out in Sturgis. And then I went to uh, Zippo and I said, I want you to make me a dozen branded radio station lighters for every station that I deliver to come and broadcast from Sturgis. So I went and got eight stations the first year. And I, I every station got a dozen branded Zippo lighters for the radio station's logo on it. And we used those. They gave those away. And those people that won the lighter qualified to win a trip. And so I built that whole Sturgis broadcast and, and, and Zippo got a lot of movement out of that. So I went to Zippo headquarters in Bradford, Pennsylvania the next year and I sat down with them and I went, hey, I don't know what you're used to, but this is what I do. And, uh, you know, I reinvent the English language when I opened my southern mouth. I got long hair. I play a chainsaw on stage, but this is what I can do for you. And I said, I don't want to negotiate with you every time I have an idea. I just want you to put me on a retainer. And I'll, I'll constantly think of ideas to, to lift your brand. And they said, yes. I, I mean, I, if you don't ask, you don't get. They said, yes. So I spent five years creating a model for them. And then Sydney Franks' company came to me and asked me to do the same thing for them that I was doing for Zippo and, and uh, did that. And then Budweiser regionally, within, I was learning about them. And then I, I was tying Harley-Davidson dealerships in, so I learned about that. And the dealer advisory council for Harley-Davidson went to the Harley-Davidson Motor Company corporate and said, okay, this guy needs to be consulting you guys. And so just it, it all, I didn't go after it. Those things just came to me because we were delivering and being great partners and putting fun stuff together. And then I thought, well, I might as well start my own brand of whiskey because I'm selling enough whiskey for everybody else. So we started selling the whiskey and, and uh, just and kept the band going. And I don't know, it just, it all is synergetic. How does one start a whiskey company? Do you sit there? Do you bring in, I guess mixologists or people who make whiskey. How does it start? Because, and by the way, I live in New Jersey and we can't get it here. So you better tell your distributors to get that shit up to Jersey. Um, well, 
you could probably special order it up there. Um, you know, it's, New Jersey is a tougher place to, to get the liquor into, but uh, and we're in some surrounding states. Uh, we're in like 23 states right now with the, the Jesse James bourbon, the honey bourbon, the spice bourbon, the the uh, single barrel, the devil's devil cinnamon whiskey. But um, I um, I was looking to get into the spirits world. I was consulting, like I say, Sydney Franks. I had some distributor friends. I told him I was looking at getting into that world of liquor, and he goes, well, I know a guy that's sitting on $5 million worth of bourbon, and he's looking for a brand. <laughs> so it just it was just a, you know, a day that the sun was shining on my ass, and I, I was able to get it going. Now, what made you decide to get involved with Full Throttle Saloon, and how did you get that to TV? Well, um, Mike Ballard is, you know, he's a, a southern boy from Tennessee, and he grew up laying tile if his dad on the tile company. And he didn't want to, I just like I didn't want to pour concrete, he didn't want to sit on his knees and grout tile all day. <laughs> so he had uh, gotten into the pager business and then the cell phone business. And he, he grew up the largest cell phone company in the Southeast. He uh, sold it for a few million dollars and went to Sturgis and bought the property and built a full throttle saloon. That's right around the time I met him. And I just really appreciated his grassroots uh, uh, approach to marketing. We went to Daytona Bike Week. I took him to New York City. And everywhere we went, he was putting full throttle stickers on everybody. He put, he put a full throttle sticker on the on the Wall Street, the bull that sits on Wall Street, the big brass bull. He put a full throttle saloon sticker on that bull's balls. And um, I just, I, I, so I just knew he was the kind of guy that I wanted to be a partner with. So what happens when it burnt down what's going through your mind is it automatically they rebuild or what 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 is your mindset at that point my mindset was i was worried about him i mean that was his baby and and i was you know working really hard to be strong for him um, it burnt down he called he was in tennessee the rally had just happened and he went back home to tennessee i was on the road in our tour bus in jackson hole wyoming he called and told me that the bar had burnt down or was burning down I went and did an emergency number to get Hertz to get me in a car. And I drove seven, eight hours to get to Sturgis. He flew from Tennessee to Rapid City. And then and then we picked him up. And, and uh, by that time, the federal government had seized the property because it was like an atomic bomb went off. And they thought we had blown it up ourselves to collect insurance money. And uh, so our attorney told us we couldn't go out there. And uh, so we... Uh, sat in the Holiday Inn lobby and cried and waited on them to give us permission to come out to the site. And then they walked us around the perimeter. And again, I was trying to be strong for him because uh, I knew it was going to be devastating to see it all blown to pieces. And and uh, he handled it really great. But when I got around to the stage where I played so many memorable shows and I had a little cabin back there and all of it was burnt down, I broke down like a big pussy. I started crying. And, uh, but Within a, within a few days' time, you know, he, he actually, to his credit, you know, he said, you know, we're going to rebuild and we're going to do something totally different. And we found uh, 600 acres right down the road from the old Full Throttle and we, and we built, you know, the last fantasy island for adults that's around now. The new Full Throttle Slim is amazing. Tell me about Mixer. I read on your website, it's a, it, what is Mixer? It's a new, a new thing you're working on. Mixer's just a proprietary back-end research platform. It was originally and initially uh, designed for uh, radio and television, but over the years we found that it works great. Like, we're the primary 
data gathering company for Harley-Davidson Motor Company, all 651 dealerships in all of North America. We work with Top Coat, which is an incredible paint finish product that you can put on your car. They use the platform. Uh, the VFW uses the platform. They have a million members and 5,000 posts across the United States, and they support our veterans like nobody else. They use the platform. Um, uh, Eagle Rider, which is like, imagine Hertz rental car for motorcycles. Eagle Rider is an incredible organization. If, um, if you don't have a motorcycle or you don't have the time to fly to Daytona for Daytona Bike Week or fly to Sturges or wherever, Chicago, uh, you, if you've only got a weekend, you can fly into Chicago. Eagle Rider will rent you a motorcycle, and you can drop it off in L.A. if you want to. It's really cool. And uh, you can become an Eagle Rider club member. So anyway, it's just uh, you know, just all those kind of things that I love and, and we work with. But Mixer is the is the datafication platform for all those companies. I always like to ask my guests this. Give me a good rock and roll story from one, with Jackal. Give me one of those rock and roll stories that people like to hear. Because, you know, you, you've lived a great life. But give me a good rock and roll story that happened with Jackal. Uh, so we were struggling. We were living on, you know, five dollars a day to eat on uh, out on the road and we get through playing in petersburg virginia one night and i'm up against the stage waiting on the guys in the band to try to see if they can corral a woman or not to go home with them or something and or take them back to their house or and i'm, I'm ready to go I, I was hungry and i was tired and and it was late in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning and this little this little black guy walks up to me a little midget he was i mean just a just a tiny little midget he goes hey man give me a dollar and I said, man, I don't have a dollar. I'm, I'm struggling myself. He goes, ah, oh, man, you got it. You give me a dollar. You know, I, said, I said, you know what? And I pointed to the crowd. I said, you see that guy back there? And I pointed to the bass player. I said, he's got all kind of money. Go get it from him. So he waddled off back. I mean, he was a tiny, small fella. And he top waddles back through the crowd. And he gets back into the crowd. And I hear him going, hey, man, give me a dollar. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I can hear the bass player going, why? You know, just, you got to be kidding me. So I finally got all the guys corralled. We get out, we get in the band, and we're leaving the, the club, and we're pulling out of the parking lot. Well, there he was sitting on the corner. And we all went, ah, oh, there he is. And so we opened up the door and told him to get in. We were going to take him to get something to eat. We weren't going to give him money, but we, would, we were going to buy him a hamburger. So we went down the road, and there was a 24-hour Dairy Queen, and we went in, and we walk in with him. And we're looking at this menu that's up above is with the old fashioned with the menus up above the counter. And he's standing there looking straight up at it, trying to figure out what he was going to order. And uh, we were going to buy him a hamburger and the door opens up and this big muscled guy walks in and, and says, Hey Oz, loan me $5. And all of a sudden panic was over that little fellow's face. And he looked at that guy and he went, wrong midget. <laughs> and, and we thought that was the greatest thing ever because he, he got he was getting busted that, he was, that that guy was wanting to borrow five dollars from him and they called him he, he called him oz but it um but anyway it was funny because anytime now 30 years later anytime now if somebody bang goes where'd you put that bottle of this or where's that or you did this or you did that so like, wrong midget and uh, that stuck with us we still say it to this day wrong midget one but final i'll never forget it I'll never forget him. When we were on the way to the Dairy Queen, he was standing straight up in that van holding on to the back seat, and that van was a piece of shit. And I mean, y'all big rock stars riding around in this goddamn van. This thing's a piece of shit. <laughs> giving us hell. And we told him, you better shut up. We're about to buy you a hamburger. One, one, uh, fi one final question. Um, you've had it, you know, you, you, 
you've been a, you're a rock star. You you play with your son. You have you've had great business ventures. What can you say? It's a two parter. What can you say is the highlight of your career, and what has made you the most proud in your career? The highlight of my career was uh, was happened at the Full Throttle Saloon. Uh, we did a tribute to wounded warrior uh, named Todd Love, and you can go on, you can go on YouTube and just uh, just search Todd Love L O V E and Full Throttle Saloon, and you'll see a tribute that we did. It was part of the TV show, but you can see it. And uh, he had uh, he had actually his dad and I went to high school together, and he actually graduated from the same high school that he and his dad that his dad and I went to, and he was blown up in Afghanistan. He lost both of his legs and one of his arms. And uh, we went, the, the band went and Jackal went and visited with uh, Walter Reed, went and visited the soldiers and met with him. And he had always wanted to come to Sturgis with his dad. And we were able to get Walter Reed to let him out long enough to come to, to visit the full throttle during the rally. And we ran a big video clip up on the wall that showed everybody about this guy's story. Little did they know that the, 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 flip, the switch flipped and, and all of a sudden it went to a live feed of he and I up in a helicopter. And we landed in the back of the throttle and, and took him out on stage. That was that's probably one of the biggest highlights of being able to do something like that was just really good. You can search it again. Just search Todd Love, Full Throttle Saloon. It's just an amazing night. And um, that was it. And then, uh, and then what was the other question? Uh, What's made you the most proud of your career, of what you've done? Well, that, um, yeah, just, well, just being able to do stuff like that and, and uh, you know, um, having – Having people come up and tell you what songs mean to them. You know, I mean, you write a song, and I know what it means to me, but for somebody to come up and, you know, tell me what it means to them, you know, whether whether it was they were stationed in Afghanistan or Iraq, and when will it rain means something to them special, or I stand alone means something to somebody because of the adversity they had overcome or because they got fired up for a football game that they were playing or what you just hear all these different things, you know, uh, that, that what a song means to somebody and, you know, or that my child was conceived, you know, to listening to Dirty Little Mind or something, <laughs> whatever, you know, there's just, there's all those, or there's tons of people that say that they met at a jackal show and, uh, you know, and, and now they're married with kids and just things that happen because of the band. So those things are, are really cool. Okay, so the album comes out November 10th. Um, are you going to tour? Yeah, it's a Jesse James Dupree solo record, and, but trust me, it's my son, Nigel T on the drums, Roman on the bass. Jackal's still touring, but I am going to go do some dates with this band with my son and Roman and probably find some other guest people to play with because it's, it's a lot of fun with these songs are cool and they deserve to be played. But you, you can find the record, uh, uh, pre, pre-order it now on all the formats and platforms. And you can pre-order the vinyl record and the bundle and the CD and such at jessejamesdupree.com. And, uh, and the single is out now. It's called, uh, it's called Never Gets Old. Co-wrote it with Brian Johnson from ACDC. I'm proud of it. And uh, go check the video out and try to win you a trip to Florida. Hit that QR code and, and name those 35 bands and get you a $1,000 bonus check. So, people, go check it out. And go to the, his website's great. I mean, it breaks down everything. You can find Mixer, his campground. He talk about everything. So go to jessejamesdupree, D-U-P-R-E-E.com. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 970 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, well, Twitter, X, whatever it is. I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Thanks.